Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Mark Bruni, who is the co-director of The Tale of Despero, which is playing at Berkeley Rep through January 5th. Mark Bruni previously directed Beautiful, the Carol King musical, which was a big hit on Broadway. Mark Bruni has, according to Playbill, 16 previous shows that he's worked on, mostly as an assistant director, started out as the rehearsal assistant for a show called Swing right out of college, 1999. Before we go into your career, I'd like to talk about Tale of Despero. I remember seeing an animated movie about a mouse called, with Dustin Hoffman, one of the voices, called The Tale of Despero a little over 10 years ago. And it's based on a well-known children's book. It's a book by Kate DiCamillo of the same name, The Tale of Despero, which Universal turned into an animated film. This came about because Universal approached the Pigpen Theater Company, who are seven guys who all went to Carnegie Mellon together and had... Uh, in conjunction with their time at Carnegie Mellon, done a piece that was called The Old Man and the Old Moon that was uh, a, a, a product of their time uh, collaborating with each other in college. And that show became something that they toured for 10 years. And one of the executives at Universal, Chris Hertzberger, saw that show and approached them about adapting this book. So that was about two and a half years ago, and they began to create a musical version that's based more on the book than on the film, but it's a property that is obviously in their catalog and something they were interested in finding a theatrical way into the story. And so that's sort of how it came about. Do we know why somebody wanted to turn this into a musical, why they were approached to begin with? Well, I think that a lot of what Pigpen does is to use theatrical devices that are very homemade. They all, uh, by necessity, started out their careers doing theater with flashlights and cardboard and doing shadow puppets. And so those storytelling devices with this story of a human world, a rat world, a mouse world, and finding creative solutions that are theatrical that uh, allow us to to d indicate scale and the difference between these two kinds of worlds was something that was really appealing. And I think that the idea of not doing a kind of straightforward, very literal depiction of this story and rather giving the audience some chance for imagination, which is exactly the kind of theater that these guys are, are very interested in making. It sounds a little like the kind of, kind of theater that someone like Mary Zimmerman might do or 39 Steps. Yeah, sure. I think what's appealing about it is that it's all happening in front of you and that there's not a whole lot of technical wizardry to it. We sort of expose what, what's all happening and it's all happening made for you and in front of you. In addition to being a theater company, these seven guys also are composers and they all play instruments. And so it's a piece that has actor musicians that are 
accompanying themselves as they're depicting these characters and going in and out of a number of different characters. So there's sort of quick changes of personality, which involve very subtle but hopefully effective theatrical tools that are indicative rather than literal or that allow the audience to bring a bit of their imagination to the table as they're watching it. So Pigpen performs, the seven members yeah, perform, so, and I assume there were others too. So yeah, so the, the shows that they have done up until this point have been just the seven of them. And they have directed each other, and it's been a very tight-knit collective. And so the new thing with this project is to add some additional collaborators to the table, including myself as a co-director, and also adding some designers that they hadn't worked with before. And there are four additional actors who are playing Despero, the mouse, Roscoe, the, the rat, Migri Sao, the serving girl, and Princess P, those four actors, and then the seven guys. And, and I think that for the first time, they have women in their shows, which is something that's very new for them. The audience walks in. What do they see? How does the show start? There's a character in the book, the narrator of the book has a very strong voice. And in adapting this and creating this piece, there was a desire to keep that voice as part of the experience in some way. So there is a character that they've created called the librarian, who is sort of the audience's way into the story. We say right at the outset that the audience has come to hear a story. I think this show sort of celebrates storytelling conventions and the idea of all being in a room together and listening to a story being told and to watch it unfold in front of you and hopefully be surprised by some of the ways in which this very complicated and multifaceted story, the book is constructed in four parts and from sort of four different points of view. And so part of the challenge of this has been to take those four points of view and to distill that down into one narrative with a trunk with a kind of classic hero journey, Despero, the little mouse who wants to be a knight, goes on in a classic Joseph Campbell fashion and going through all of those steps. But then in the course of that, seeing the parallel journey of of a rat who is also similarly transgressing outside of the kind of um, uh, rules of his world and, and the consequences that appear when both of them are faced with what happens when they uh, do something different, something weird, something outside of the comfort zone of their own communities. And then in conjunction with that, it all happens in a kingdom that has had a very drastic incident that has resulted in the death of a queen. And the king, in response, has banned soup and rats. And so Despero's journey is to sort of find out what happened and how this kingdom went from being so flourishing and where crumbs were abundant and there was a, a much more easy way of life for the mouse community to, to this new starvation central of the new one year later kingdom where they're still dealing with the central loss. I think one of the most successful things about the book is that although it is nominally a children's book that has great appeal to kids who are maybe, you know, like seven to 12 in seeing the way that the audience responded to this, I think the desire from the beginning has been to create a sophisticated piece of theater that is not a children's theater piece. And and I think the themes of loss and heartbreak and forgiveness are very sophisticated and are able to be understood and uh, and appreciated on a number of different levels. And there's some things the kids will get and they'll love that sort of action sequence of the spoon on needle. And at the same time, the parents and grandparents can appreciate the sort of complicated themes of forgiveness and how far can you go? What's the threshold for forgiveness? I think they're very complicated and nuanced 
ways of dealing with those issues that allow kids to approach these topics with a level of sophistication that can meet their own level of growth. Nobody's dressed up as a mouse or a rat. No, no, no. We have no big realistic ears. You will not see any kind of choreography that involves pause or scurrying. Again, we're going for a world that is allowing the audience to bring the imagination to the table. So, for example, the idea of seeing this mouse with gigantic ears, you will not be seeing the gigantic ears. You will have to imagine the gigantic ears, but you do see the gigantic ears in a shadow puppet sequence, or you will see it on an actual three-dimensional puppet, which is used at some point. So there's there's devices where the storytelling, when it's interacting between two different species, that we indicate the scale by using devices of puppetry. Mark Bruni, Pigpen Theater Company is approached, and of course, because this is the kind of thing they do, they're figuring out how to put it all together. At what point... Why am I involved? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, good question. Universal brought me aboard. I think that the kind of work that Pigpen has done, which I've admired greatly, has been about telling stories and using music in a diegetic fashion or in a kind of underscoring fashion. And the thing that they had not done before prior to this was to write music for character and to have people who are singing their feelings and who are expressing sentiments. And so I think that there was a desire to kind of add some spice to the soup, so to speak, and to have some experience from the musical side of things and to create this different kind of hybrid form that takes the best of what a musical can do, which is to reach our emotions and to allow us to access these characters from an emotional way, which is what Pigpen does all the time in their shows as well. But I think that this was a chance to just continue to grow the circle. This experience has been one of the most collaborative ones that I've ever had. This is a very much best idea in the room kind of situation. And and we've had a long process of knocking around ideas and kind of figuring out what the best way to depict each of these individual moments in order to kind of knit this into the tapestry that it has become. At what point did you come in? I mean, were they... They had done a first reading at the Old Globe about a year and a half ago. Now it's almost two years ago, I think. And I saw this reading and then we went to work and started to address some rewrites. We did two or three readings in New York. And then we also did a few week-long puppetry labs where we were working with, Pigpen has worked for a long time with two uh, puppetry designers, Lydia Fine and, and Nick Lahane, who are very smart about, about that side of things and who have been great resource in in developing the visual language of the show, and then them in conjunction with our designers, Jason Sherwood, who did the set, and Nidiavich, and now uh, Don Holder, who's lighting it, uh, Nevin Steinberg Sound, have just brought all of those, all the various devices that they have to bring to the table to try and kind of figure this all out. And then and then also, I, I, I have to mention the other critical collaborator on this has been uh, our choreographer, Jen Jenkishe, who has created a visual, well, a visual language in a certain way, but also a, a just a movement vocabulary that is completely unique to this show. And you're not going to see any dancing rats or dancing mice in a way that you might in an animated movie. You're really seeing elevated movement, but in a way that that feels completely organic and feels very much with a level of sophistication that matches the sophistication of the writing. So when you came in, sounds as if they had something there, but the songs were not 
directly character related um, at that point? I mean, they they had started to write some. They had certainly written some a, a number of songs at that point. But you know, musicals are a long term process and right. to, and and require a great deal of of guidance in terms of just figuring out how it's all going to work. And so since I've come on board, they've probably written you know five or six new songs, and we we've gone back and forth about any number of scenes in writing and it's all about getting everything stacked up and making sure that the story is being told in the way that we want it to and and like i was saying before about the the specific challenge of this material because it has sort of these twin protagonists and because the book is divided into four points of view and we were not about to do a kind of you know jersey boys rat style taking those four points of view and trying to create the four seasons of ratum we were really looking for something that had more of a, a sort of singular protagonist and so i think that that was one of the biggest challenges of the writing process is just kind of figuring out what is most essential and what does the audience absolutely need to know to be able to appreciate this and what kind of details could be left by the wayside so that we're not in the theater for three and a half hours or in the theater for 90 minutes. And the idea was to create something that was really a, a 90 minute experience of going into this world and and staying in it for an, uh, all the way until the end. Well, I know that most musicals when they start out are like 3 to 4 hours and then it's cut 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 cut. Yes, sure, that was that was definitely true of the uh, original My Fair Lady. I think it was about 4 <laughs> hours long. When you came in, they'd already decided on the single narrator. Or was that kind of where you were coming from? There was a narrator for sure. You know, direction is such an interesting thing because it encompasses so many different departments and it encompasses so many marginal decisions that happen over the course of a long process. And so I consider myself to be an interpretive artist. I'm not myself a writer. And so my experience of uh, trying to tell the story is to ask questions and say, what are, what are we trying to achieve with this? Are we successfully getting this across to an audience? And then once we get it in front of an audience, of course, it's about uh, sitting in the back and going, okay, I think they're getting it here. And I think they're, they're this, this, this is when we're shifting in our seats and we're getting a little bored and we need to you know, be moving things along. And on the other side of the coin, maybe this moment needs to be more robust in order to allow the emotion of it to land in the way that we want it to. And, and basically reacting to the intentions of, uh, of the producers and the writers and, and also um, trying to create something beautiful and something that hopefully has appeal to as wide a range of uh, audience members as possible. Pigpen's first show, when we were in San Diego, there was a local production of Old Man and the Old Moon, and they were so moved to see that this this piece had life. Hopefully, this will be the kind of thing that will eventually have a life in, um, in, in future productions. Do you ever think about Broadway for this, then? Well, who knows what the future will bring? We'll see. I know that we have a, a really dedicated team and a team of designers and professionals working on it that are working at the highest level. And I, I think that the time in Berkeley here is going to be extremely useful at further honing the storytelling and the visual elements to a place where it hopefully can be in the pantheon of, of shows that have that kind of level of sophistication and, and, and execution. Something like 39 Steps, which I assume developed in a similar manner, yeah. Yeah. now is going through all kinds of theater companies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that what was appealing about this at the beginning and continues to be appealing is just the, the inherently theatrical nature of this treatment of the story and that you can only do it in the theater. It's not about trying to create something that is literal, that is going to require a lot of technical 
know-how and wizardry. This is the kind of thing that if you have a sheet and some flashlights, you could kind of create a lot of the effects that we're doing in the show. That makes it very different from your last show, Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, we had a few more bells and whistles and uh, some furniture that moved by itself, which we don't have any of in this show. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about your career. You went to Dartmouth, you said. I did. Grew up in northern New Jersey. When you were growing up, did you head over into Manhattan and see a lot of shows? I did. I did. I saw quite a few shows. I was very lucky in that I had parents who were very interested in the arts and I remember going across the bridge, come into the city, and oftentimes we would go in on a Sunday and try and see if we could get last-minute tickets to go see something at a matinee, and that that was a great treat. I remember going to see a, a number of musicals that way and ending up with what I now realize were house seats because they were seats that were released at the last minute for shows that were very well sold, but I, I had no idea what house seats were at that point. But we would go and stand in line at the box office and just see if there were returns or if somebody gave tickets back. And we were always like, how did these great tickets, why did somebody turn them back? And then we realized that they were probably house seats. They were, <laughs> they were holding if until the last minute and no famous people showed up. So we got them. So that's kind of a better option than going to TKTS, I guess. We certainly went to TKTS a fair amount as well, because at that point, it was even much more of a bargain than it is now, where it's a variable rate of discount. At that point, it was always 50% off, at least. It was a great treat to go into the box office. And I would say that only happened a few times. Revival of Me and My Girl that was at the Marquee was one that we were just dying to see. And that that was a real great treat. Then you went off to Dartmouth. You majored in theater there, I was a double major. I did major, it was called drama. They have since changed it to a theater major. That was mostly because I took a bunch of classes and if I took a few more, I would have gotten a major. But I was an econ and modified with government major because at the time I I had this idea that the way that I was going to marry these two interests was going to be an entertainment lawyer. And so that was something that kind of came into my consciousness. And the plan was to go to law school after college. And I sort of fell in love with directing and and then got extremely lucky after college and began to to get some assistant directing gigs. And I said, well, I'm just going to follow this train as long as I can, which is um, fortunately still going. (laughs) Well, talking to a lot of directors, most of them start out as actors. So your path is a little bit different. Well, to be honest, I was definitely an actor in college and high school and was a performer and uh, sort of all-rounder. And I got into directing partially because I enjoyed getting to tell a story from multiple perspectives and not to be kind of locked into just seeing it through the lens of, of, of one character. And I very much enjoy being in the rehearsal room with actors because I like to be able to think the story through as if I were playing any of the characters. That's a great joy and fun. And, uh, and just to be surrounded by these incredible artists. And there's nothing more thrilling than like in the course of this process, first of all, watching a moment come into into the rehearsal room and then see it appear uh, and know know the moment where it started. But then also with writing, because I'm not a writer, I I really admire that creative impulse and the, the ability to come up with an idea overnight and bring in the new pages or a new song. And to be the first person that hears that new song or hears that new scene has been a, a, an incredible privilege. And I've been very lucky to be the first years, big desperate years, hearing their, their new work. I noticed in looking at your resume as an assistant director, most of the shows were revivals, reworks, 
Anything Goes, White Christmas, yeah, Greece, yeah. Kaj. I, I was very, very fortunate to be able to collaborate with, my first job was with Jerry Zaxon. Through him, I met uh, a number of other wonderful directors of musicals. And I, I love doing musicals with scale. I love uh, the idea of telling a story with music and dance and having all of those elements cohere. And, and, and I, I thought that the best way to learn how to do that would be to get in the room with the people that I admired the most. And for some reason, they were able to let me in. Yeah, I did get to work on a lot of uh, large scale revivals. And I think the thing that you learn about revivals is it's wonderful to work on material that works. It's a different task. Doing a new musical, there's so many elements that could go in any direction, and there's so many opportunities for it to derail. And so working on a revival is a totally different task. It's about why are you creating this revival now? What's the reason why you're taking this material and re-examining it through the lens of the present day? And what does it have to offer the contemporary conversation? But you know that on a fundamental level, it moves in a way that an audience stays engaged, that they are interested in the characters. A lot of the work, the kind of grunt work of figuring out the the storytelling and distilling it down into a two-hour format has been done before. So it's just about figuring out a way for it to feel fresh. And then for you, I would guess, as you see more and more of these and work on these shows that have already been successful, something must click. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's certainly models... I'm working on a lot of shows that work, you just have those in the back of your head and not that you're trying to completely replicate those shows. There's certainly models of, okay, you know what? Well, you know what we need? We need this kind of song that's just like that song in that musical that does this function. And so sometimes having that vocabulary and that shorthand is useful at, at offering a, um, a suggestion of how something needs to work or why the function of this needs to feel like more of a production number at this moment because we need surge of energy and it needs to act in the way that that might act in a different musical. You know, this this needs to be akin to this moment. This this needs to be an I want song or some right. you know some other kind of song that is a classic form of of musical theater writing. The I want song, the eleventh hour number. Yeah, like those yeah. yeah those kinds of things. That there's a reason that they all have become such tropes because they work and there's something that's very satisfying to an audience about following a hero through a journey and finding a you know low point and then having a catharsis. Then you get your first original musical which was beautiful that was my broadway debut yeah yeah so when you came into that was the process similar to despero then yeah i mean you know musicals are not about writing they're about rewriting and i think there's a peter stone quote he says musicals are never finished they're only abandoned at a certain point the clock runs out and you you end up with the show that you end up with and in the course of beautiful i think we started on draft number 11 and then by the time we got to opening night we were at draft 73 or 74 and that didn't even count, you know, individual pages. That was just wholesale rethinks. So we did quite a bit of work with the brilliant playwright, Doug McGrath, who is the librettist for Beautiful. And I came on board when they had done, again, a few readings. And we went to work and kind of refashioned some things and then did one reading, then did our out-of-town tryout in San Francisco. Between San Francisco and New York, we did quite a bit of work and kind of restructured most of Act Two and found a place for some songs that we were unable to put in the show in San Francisco. In fact, the one that I talk about a lot is You've Got a Friend was one of the most well-known Carol King songs, and it was not in the show in San Francisco. We just couldn't find a place for it. And then there was a moment that we said, we have to have this song in the show. This is one of the most well-known songs. And we had done 
one preview, I think it was the invited dress where we did it as the final song of the show. And it was a huge bomb because it was after we had just done, I feel the earth move, which was so up and energetic. And then everybody's on their feet. And then you've got a friend started and everyone sat down. No, no, we don't want you to sit down. (laughs) So we found a spot for it to relate to the characters. And it's now in the show at the moment where Carol is saying goodbye to her friends and goodbye to the building of 1650 before she moves to California. And so once it had some context and once it had something that felt like it was extending the emotion of the scene, then it it felt like we'd found the right spot for it. Once Despero leaves Berkeley Rep, you might go, well, Place X and place Y could use a song, and place Z mm, brings the audience in the wrong direction, things like that. Possibly, yeah. I think possibly some of that might happen while we're in previews here. That's what's great about the preview process is about sitting in the back of the house and watching an audience respond and seeing when you intend for them to respond. And the good thing about doing something that's at least partially a comedy is that they tell you right there. So you intend for something to be funny, and they all laugh, great. And uh, if they don't laugh, then and you wanted it to be funny, then maybe you should look at that. Mark Bruni, what is Trevor the Musical? Trevor the Musical, it's a show that I have been working on for about four years. Uh, we did a production in Glencoe, Illinois, at the Writers Theater in the uh, summer uh, two years ago. And it's based on an Academy Award-winning short film that won the uh, Short Film Academy Award in the mid-90s and spawned The Trevor Project. And The Trevor Project is a LGBT teen suicide hotline and provides resources for LGBT teens. The story is about a boy in 1981 who is obsessed with Diana Ross and is bullied at his school and tries to commit suicide. And it's mostly a comedy. The story and the movie, which is a 14-minute short film, has been expanded into a full-length musical with music by Julianne Wick-Davis and book and lyrics by Dan Collins. And it's two-thirds of an original score and then one-third of the Diana Ross song catalog. So Diana Ross is a character, and there's some fantasy sequences that include his obsession with Diana, and Diana figures prominently into that. So we're continuing to develop it, and stay tuned. And dirty Jews telling jokes? Not dirty Jews, old Jews. (laughs) Old Jews telling jokes, although many of the jokes were dirty. Um, Yeah, Old Jews Telling Jokes is a show that I helped develop and that ran off-Broadway for about a year and a half and then was produced in Chicago and now gets done around the country. It's uh, it's essentially a review that goes from birth to death with a cast of five and it, they're they're classic jokes but it also has some heartwarming stories and the, I think the surprise for everyone is about how fresh these jokes felt and the comedy is timeless. When it's dealing with a stage of life, it's not related to anything that is topical. It's just about, you know, what, what it means to be a human. And that's something that the best theater can do. Uh, Old Juice Telling Jokes is very much an entertainment that has heart. And I'm in, in no way suggesting that it, you know, is up there with the um, the great dramas. But it does have, I think, a, a connection to the human condition that allows people to access it. Uh, I went to IMDb. The only thing there is something called Search for Ellie Woods. For uh, yeah, yeah, I was the I was the associate director on Legally Blonde, the musical, and as part of that, after the show had been running for about a year on Broadway, the producers decided that they were going to replace the lead 
Elle Woods via a reality show. And there was a MTV reality show called The Search for Elle Woods, which was eight episodes and ran on MTV. I was on a couple of those episodes as the acting coach for the contestants. Yes, that's my one foray into uh, reality television. Have you ever thought about film directing or TV directing? Sure. I think that could potentially enter the conversation at some point in the future. I really enjoy the collaborative experience of having a, a group of artists around me that, that that do theater. And I love being in a room with an audience experiencing something that's live. And that's, some, that's a form that I, I'm passionate about. But I think storytelling in so many forms is all about focus and about, you know, telling something that has uh, some meaning and heart. And if that could exist in those other forms for me at some point in the future, then I would certainly welcome that. One final question, Mark Bruni. How many projects are you working on now and what's next after Despero? Trevor is certainly a great passion project of mine that is is ongoing, and that's hopefully going to happen very soon. There's a few other new musicals that are in the hopper that are in various stages of development, and they're all kind of circling the airport, and we'll see which one touches down first. So what happens then is you know that it's there and you're waiting for somebody to give you the call? Or? Uh, usually there are projects that are being developed with producers who are going to be pushing it forward in some way. And then at a certain point, it becomes about real estate and about where you, what's the building you're going to do it in. And that is very much a premium in New York City, especially because uh, shows run longer than ever. And you know Broadway real estate, of course, is at a real premium. You've been listening to an interview with Mark Bruni, who is the co-director with Pigpen Theater Company of The Tale of Despero, which is at Berkeley Rep through January 5th. For more information, you can go to berkeleyrep.org.